You got one of these? Pull it out and turn to the middle of the book, the library, I should say, to the Songbook of Israel, the Psalms, and turn to Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all of the Bible, an acrostic poem taking the sequential letters of the Hebrew alphabet and writing a long song praising the book that we're here to learn more about tonight. Drop all the way down to the letter Pei, which starts at 129. Psalm 119, verse 129. I was reading that this week and I thought of a, uh, when I was studying in Chicago there, was a Northeastern University newspaper that ran a series of ads that said that any rational person should be deeply troubled, and then they used the word ir- and irritated by the reading of the Bible. I was a long way from this verse. Verse 129, your statutes, David says, are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct your footsteps according to your word. Direct my footsteps according to your word, and let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears, look at this, flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Sade, the next acrostic letter, verse 137, righteous, righteous are you, O Lord, your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out for my enemies. Ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, they do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Good verses to begin with tonight, and let's begin with a word of prayer as we think about the historical substantiation of the book that we should be feeding on every single day. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for the experience that we have when we encounter your word. Let us, like the psalmist says, pant for your words. May we long for them. May we be frustrated and irritated when people do not obey your word, when people ignore your words. We get upset about a lot of things in this world, but I pray we would concern ourselves more with things that are important to you, like how people respond to the truth of your word. I pray we would long for the encounters that bring enlightening experiences and insights to our mind, that you would educate us about your thoughts and your ways, that we'd be able to have that uh, interactive kind of encounter that the writer of Hebrews writes about, where your word has such an effect on us that it pierces down to the inward parts of our body, where we sense it 
and the immaterial parts of who we are, our soul, our spirit, that we would be able to uh, come away from a time with your word refreshed and nourished. God, I pray that you would help us to block out whatever obstacle may stand in the way of more time sitting with your word open on a desk, on our lap, spending time soaking in the truth of your word. God, I thank you for this time of study where we can look back at topics and discoveries that we're not going to get, really frankly, anywhere else. We're not going to get it in the, in the workplace. We're not going to see these things discussed on the Discovery Channel. We're not going to have these discussions at the work lunchroom. These are the kinds of things reserved for our study here where we can purposefully focus on what we otherwise would never really dig into were we not intentional about studying the background of your word. So God, give us insight tonight. Let us get excited about the way you have authenticated your word through history. We thank you for this time. May it be a, a time of focus and a time of learning, a time of encouragement and a time of just bolstering our confidence in the veracity of your word. Help us tonight, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, wouldn't be good for us to not review our chart. So without looking, look up here at the screen if you would. And if God has a thought about whatever it may be, and he gets it into the mind of the prophet or apostle, we call that step. Oh, I love that. It's that good Mexican food that you have carved up on that is so helpful. God now is going to superintend that thought from the mind of the apostle or prophet onto paper. We call that step. Very good. Now we have all these documents sitting on the table, so to speak. We need to determine which ones are really a part of God's God-breathed library. We call that canonicity. canonicity. Very good. Now we say this indeed is a part of God's inspired library. It's got to make it through time to us. We call that transmission. transmission. Very good. Now we say, okay, we've got extant or existing manuscripts on the table. We need to make decisions about what the original manuscript looked like. We call that step textual. textual criticism. Now we have our Hebrew and Greek Bibles with a lot of footnotes. We're going to put that now into our English uh, language. We call that step translation. translation. Very good. All right. Now we left off, I think, uh, on page, I was unclear on this, but I'm guessing it was, what did you say? We finished 32, and we are now on page 33. Unshield manuscripts, you would sit around and be able to identify what that is. Those are capital letter manuscripts. They are between minuscule manuscripts and papyri. Papyri are the oldest and they're the fewest. Then we have unshield manuscripts. We have more of those, and those aren't quite as old as the papyri manuscripts. And now we're going to move into minuscule manuscripts. So let's talk about those. Letter C, I believe it is, the description. We're talking about small letters, minuscule. It is, just to put the comparison in our language, going from writing in all caps, like most of the comic strip cartoonists, into some kind of nice, curvy, small letters, minuscules. That's the word we use for small letters, not unshields. It is a modified cursive. If you look at these, actually I have minuscule 57 down there at the bottom, and we have thousands of these 
types of manuscripts, you'll see it gets a lot more curvy, it gets a lot fancier. This was the uh, script of the day, the popular writing style of this particular era. And that's how we identify them, and they start to look a lot alike. People are writing Greek in the same small cursive, modified cursive, minuscule letter style. General dates for this are between the 9th and the 15th century. We have some earlier, we have some later, but this is the bulk of these manuscripts. Minuscules, we have lots and lots of them as we'll see here. Importance, well, the most important thing is we have mass quantities of them and the more the better because we want to compare them. We don't have them printed on laser printers. We don't have them copied on Xerox machines. So we got to get them all out there. We want to compare them and see what the differences are. Mass quantities, the more the better. We have approximately cataloged and scholarly uh, uh, t- uh, critical editions of the New Testament. We have about 3,000 of those cataloged, standardized in our tablets or tables, which I don't think in even what I gave you last week, I got into the minuscules. We stopped with unshield manuscripts, and I only gave you through the first 81. Unshields, by the way, if you start to look at some of the things we printed at the beginning of your worksheet, uh, unshields always start with zero. I think I mentioned that last time. They always put a zero in the front. Minuscules don't. They always start with the regular number. Minuscule 57, minuscule 2057. You just have the regular number at the beginning, no zero at the front. Now, This is where it gets interesting, and we're just going to start to touch on some things that we will get into and be able to draw from when we start talking about textual criticism. It'll be very important for us to think this through again, so it's good for me to introduce this to you if you're not already familiar with it. Turn in your Bibles. Let's just start with uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Now, God knew what he was doing. There's an understatement for you Calvinists. God knew what he was doing. He made them wait until the festival or the feast of Pentecost. It was one of the pilgrimage festivals for the Israelites where they had to go to Jerusalem. And so he's going to start the church on that day with a supernatural bang. And it says here, Well, he's talking, they're they're speaking in the language that is understood, which, by the way, is not uh, a babbling in a closet and calling it prayer. More on that if you want to go to focalpointradio.org, you can hear us, hear us, me and the mouse in my pocket, speak at length about uh, the modern distortion of what they call tongues. But anyway, they were hearing them, just to get verse 7 and, and, and 6 in there, I guess, they heard the sound, the crowd was in, uh, and it w- came together in bewilderment because each of them heard them speaking in his own language. That was the gift of languages. That's what tongues means. That's the archaic word for language. Utterly amazed, they asked, not, are, are not all these men speaking? Uh, the, they're Galileans. I mean, come on. They're just fishermen. How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Now, we get the list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, that's a long ways away, both Jews and converts to Judaism, 
Cretans, Arabs, we're all hearing them declare the wonders of God in our own tongues, our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now, God's going to start a movement that he says, I want this to go worldwide, right? And we can look back in chapter 1, verse 8. That was the whole point. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, let's get it started by getting everyone there. So, obviously, what happens, well, you know the, the story, but let's look down to the end of the chapter here. Peter starts preaching, and he's quite successful. Lots of people respond. Down to verse 40. With many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It wasn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Fit in and have a great time in Israel. (laughs) I'm sorry. It wasn't integration. It was separation. Be different. Sorry. Those, I'm thinking of Sunday's message, who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 who? Well, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, all the way back to Rome, all over the place. Now, they were hearing them speak in their own language. What needs to happen eventually is we need the Bible in their language. So the assumption is, it's not an assumption, these are the facts because we have uncovered tons of minuscule manuscripts that go into four basic directions geographically. And I don't have a chart for this, but you can write this down in some of the white space there. We have manuscripts that stay in a pattern that reflect a geographic area. And by that I mean they're Greek manuscripts, they're minuscule manuscripts, because we have so many and we start to group them together saying, well, these seem to have a lot of characteristics that are the same, and they all begin to be uncovered and found in the Caesarean area. If you've been to Israel with us, or maybe you're going with us this year, we are, is it this year? Next year. We're almost done with this year. Uh, We spend time at Caesarea, Uh, right there on the coast, maritime, they call it. And this is the area that describes this first set of manuscripts. Well, that's in the backyard of Jerusalem where Peter is preaching. We get a lot of manuscripts and we can say, well, those all look to be all from the same kind of family. They grew up just like after the flood. We have them split, or let's, you know, talk about the the regions of people going to different places, and you say, well, those people look a lot alike, and those people look a lot alike because of all of the, uh, the, the, the having of children, all the genetic similarities, and so it is with the manuscript copying, Caesarean. And the next one is Alexandrian. We go down to Egypt, and we have a lot of manuscripts that begin to take on the same similar characteristics. Caesarean, Byzantine to the north, actually the northwest, You have manuscripts now that start to look a lot alike in the Byzantine area. That's what we call them because we found them in modern-day Turkey where the Byzantine Empire thrived. And then we even saw them in Acts chapter 2. We had people all the way from Rome. And, And these manuscripts start to look a lot alike. So there's a need for the Bible in all directions of the ancient world. There are, of the thousands of minuscule manuscripts we start to see families of texts share the same kinds of characteristics in the variants that exist between manuscripts. Now, I did it this way because if you put a map down, see here? And I didn't bring my laser. Who brought my laser for me? Anybody bring that? Who had that last time? Somebody. 
carrying their laser and probably had a knife and a gun with them as well. <laughs> I don't know, but if you have that, now that I've thoroughly embarrassed you, there's a laser right there. Look at that. Thank you. All right. There it is. Oh, you can't. What kind of laser is this? <laughs> see, that other lady had one that would melt your retina. <laughs> oh, you can see here. All right, here's Egypt, right? Well, let's just get a bearing here for those of you who didn't do well in geography. This is Israel. See it right here? This is Jerusalem. Though it's not on the map, right here is Caesarea. Okay, this is modern-day Turkey. This was ancient Asia Minor. Up here, Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul. Okay, over here, Italy. There's the boot. We know that. That was easy to remember. Rome. Okay, down here is the top of Africa, but it's Egypt, Libya. Now put these in your mind on top of them. Manuscripts that we've uncovered, no matter where we found them, okay, we start to see that they have similarities as being, hey, this is the Western style of a variant. This is a Byzantine style of variant. This is a Caesarean. This is Alexandrian. Alexandrian, Caesarean, Byzantine, and Western. While this is called into question, and if some of you are on the cutting edge of textual criticism, you say, well, he must not be reading anymore. I'm reading. I get it. I understand that a lot of this is, is debated ad infinitum, ad nauseum. I get it. But there are clearly, in my mind, I can't get past clear distinctions in the traditional way of understanding the families of texts that exist. Okay? Now, something that may be helpful is to think of this logically. And, 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 just, and we're going to think of it without viewing what history does. I know this is all about transmission. But if you have the original autographs, okay, by the close of the first century, we have all 27 books of the New Testament written. More on the Old Testament later tonight. You have texts from Israel being produced, and we call those Caesarean. And they seem to have the same characteristics as texts we see developing from Caesarea. Okay? We have Alexandrian down in Egypt, down south. We have Byzantine up north and out west a little bit. And we have Western. Now, all things being equal, if we have good representation of Christians in all four quadrants of the ancient world, we're assuming that they're all copying manuscripts and they're increasing in number. So as you move from the autographs all the way across to, say, let's just say this chart goes for eight centuries right here. You're assuming by the time we get to the 8th century, we've got all kinds of manuscripts from all four families of texts, okay? Now, here's the problem. Time has done this to all the manuscripts. We just don't have as many manuscripts because they're all written on papyrus, and papyrus deteriorates, and it all falls apart, and they have to throw them away because they're not used anymore, and some of them get damaged, and they're not around. So we're working off of copies of cop copies. We want to recreate the autographs. We don't have those, and I guess I should have destroyed those as well. But you don't have the originals to go back. So when we go to minuscule manuscripts, in other words, if we were, here's what I'm looking for, my laser, not my, bar my borrowed laser. If this is papyrus right here, right, guess what most of the papyri are? Well, they're all Alexandrian. Now, why did you not knock out as many Alexandrian texts as you did these other ones? Because they're all being found in Egypt. Egypt isn't like 
the, the, the Byzantine Empire, which is a lot more like, you know, uh, Minnesota, Kansas, right? Uh, it's like, I don't know, the Sahara Desert. <laughs> it's hot, it's arid, it's dry. So the chances of us finding old Alexandrian manuscripts are good. So we have some here. Now we have un uh, uncial manuscripts. We have more of those, and we do have representation here. But now we finally get into minuscule manuscripts. And we've got representation now from all four. What I'm saying is by the time we get to minuscule manuscripts, we have representations from all four families. And we can begin to see characteristics that are developed and copied from each, each area. Then something interesting takes place. Let's see if I ever come back to this. Uh, I might, but I'm, I'm now moving partly into page 34. Okay, Because here's what happens. Caesarean, Alexandrian, Byzantine, and Western. Here's the thing. Guess what? We want the scripture copied in Egypt. Problem is, I'm sorry, let's start with Caesarea. Caesarea, they stop speaking Greek and they start speaking Syriac. Okay? So the, the language changes. And we start to now see Syriac translations or what we call Peshitta translations. That's what it's called. Peshitta is the Syriac. There's all different forms of ancient Syriac translations, but the, the, the Greek goes away. In Egypt, they stop speaking. They don't speak Greek. They speak Coptic, though they all are trilingual. They end up preferring to have the scripture in Coptic. So we don't have a lot of manuscripts increasing in Egypt. We have Coptic translations springing up and multiplying. Out west, what do they speak? Well, by the 4th century, everybody's speaking Latin. By the 3rd century, they're speaking Latin. So manuscripts are no longer in high demand in Greek. Now they're in high demand in Latin. Here's what happens with the Byzantine Empire. They keep speaking Greek. Everybody continues to speak Greek. That's the language of the Byzantine Empire. Okay? So we start to see three super important early translations of the Bible. In Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. Those become very important. Let me give you another visual that may help. If this is what we've got in terms of extant manuscripts, right? Some very, very old Alexandrian because the climate was good for us, right? We've got some decent Western and a couple Caesarean and hardly any Byzantine minuscule, but then we've got our uncials. Now we have minuscules in all four categories because we have lots of those. Here's what happens. Byzantine, because that's what they speak in that area, we continue to have a multiplication of Byzantine manuscripts. In Caesarea, it becomes displaced by the Peshitta or the Caesar or Syrian manuscripts. Now we have a translation taking over. In Alexandria, we have Coptic manuscripts now taking over and supplanting the Greek manuscripts from Alexandria. And in the Western hemisphere, we have the, uh, of the, of the ancient world, we have Latin manuscripts taking over. So if you were to go from this period of minuscule manuscripts and say, what else is going on in this time period? You'd say, well, we've got a lot of Latin, a lot of Syriac, and a lot of Coptic, and a lot of Greek. Greek, though, continue the Byzantine text family. Latin supplants the Western, Syriac supplants the Caesarean, and Coptic supplants the Alexandrian. Does that, does that make any sense? 
because that took me uh, like an hour and a half to put that part of the PowerPoint together. <laughs> so I hope that makes some kind of, do you see what's happening here? Because a lot of people, when we get around to textual criticism, are going to say, hey, we have more Byzantine. We're democratic. Majority wins, right? Those have got to be the best, most reliable text family. More on that when we get to textual criticism. But you need to know when we're looking at minuscule manuscripts, yeah, we got a ton of Byzantine manuscripts. Okay? Most of them are Byzantine manuscripts. Doesn't mean that text family is necessarily the most accurate. It does mean, though, that Alexandrian, Caesarean, and Western have been replaced by Coptic, Syriac, and Latin. That's helpful. More on that in the future. But we're on to early versions. That was my transition into early versions. Major manuscripts. I didn't give you any major manuscripts, did I? I'll do that next time. I just skipped over that in my prep. There's, I could shoot from the hip. I'll do that next week. But Ferrer, Lake, Family 1, Family 13. There's lots of breakdowns within this because there's just so many massive quantities. So we'll get, I'll, I'll maybe come back and touch on that next time. But let's talk about early, early versions. This is important. Certainly as we compare them in textual criticism to the Byzantine text family. Okay? Uh, description. Early versions are obviously ancient translations, old translations, as far back as we can go. Now what's interesting is we can find translations of Greek manuscripts. Now we're talking New Testament realm, right? Older than minuscule manuscripts, and even in some cases, older than uncial manuscripts. See? So that's important. They're not given as much weight in a lot of people's minds because, well, they're not in Greek. They're translated. Fine, they're translated. But when a variant is big, when we see that, hey, the, the end of the book of Mark, that has a lot more in the Byzantine text family than the other three, then when I say, well, I'm interested in looking at Coptic or Syriac or in Latin translations that predate the, the bulk of the Byzantine manuscripts, well, that's important becomes important. Maybe not in the nuances of the words because translations are always a step removed from what the original manuscript said because they're translated. Okay? But they're ancient translations and there's something to be said for that. Now, a couple things in this regard. Usually they're translated by missionaries. People that are trying to get the word out. Unfortunately, that leads to sometimes this, done in, this being done in, in haste. Uh, being done with perhaps a poor trans, uh, a poor knowledge of, of the Greek language. And we may touch on that a little bit more. Now, just to step aside here, because we're 90% of our discussion to this in this section has been New Testament, you need to understand that the Old Testament, and I've said this a few times, but I need to say it again, has already been translated into a translation into Greek that was even before the time of Christ. Right? By the 3rd and 2nd century B.C., we had the Hebrew scriptures translated into the Septuagint. That's what we call it, LXX, the 70. The 70 scholars who translate for Alexander the Great, the Old Testament. And also we have another very important translation, early translation of the Bible, the Samaritan Pentateuch. Samaritan Pentateuch, which was a variation on the Hebrew language, and it was done from Hebrew to the Sumerian alphabet, but the Samaritan Old Testament predates the time of Christ as well. 
So we have other translations, and just to kind of round out this discussion of the Old Testament as well, but our focus continues to be on the New Testament. Early versions, general dates, well, we've already seen that text. We have extant copies of translations of the Bible all the way back to the second century. Now, if you're keeping papyrus, uncials, and minuscules in your mind in a chronological order, you're saying, wow, we just bunny hopped all the way back to papyrus ages. You did. So it's very important for us to keep track of that. Early versions. Importance. Why are these so important? Because they're witnesses to variant readings, particularly big variant readings. Two of the biggest in all of the New Testament are the longer ending of Mark. We're going to talk about that when we get to textual criticism. If you notice in your Bible, there's always a footnote or it's in italics. Was this really in the original manuscripts? We'll talk about that. And the other one is the story of the woman caught in adultery over there in, in uh, John, into John 7 and John 8. Um, both of those are the two major textual variants, and we can obviously see whether a translation, an early version of the Bible, is going to exclude that or include that. More on that in textual criticism. Equivalent words. This is helpful. Sometimes we're scratching our head from our perspective. What does this Greek word mean? If we can get translations from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries that give us other languages that translate those Greek words, we begin to now write our Greek dictionaries called lexicons, and we begin to find out, okay, now we know what that word meant and how that word was used. Because there's a lot of craziness that goes on with people saying, here's what this word means. And you've heard me use this example perhaps, but I talk about the word awful right? Awful. You all know what the word awful means because you've heard it used all of your life. But if some, you know, uh, linguist comes and he's trying to preach about a text in which you wrote the word awful and he's doing it 2,000 years from now and English is not spoken anywhere and they begin to talk about awe, awe. Let me explain to you what awe means. Awe means being filled with wonder and grandeur and full means being full to capacity. And what this guy meant when he wrote awful was he was full to capacity with wonder, right? That's what awful meant. You'd say, that's not what I meant, right? And so when we get the word awful translated into other languages, we start to understand that can't be what it meant. Because look at this word in Syriac or in Coptic or in Latin. Helps us understand that's not at all what they meant. They do that, they do that by the way, with words like metanoia. You've heard me talk a lot about metanoia, the word repentance. Today, a lot of you know, etymological discussion about repentance is after thought, right? After meta, that's what it means. It's a Greek preposition. And noia means to think or the mind. And they'll say, oh, I know what metanoia means. It doesn't mean we're turning from sin to God. What it means is we're just thinking differently now. That's what it means. Metanoia. It's translated in our Bibles repentance. And people try to make an equivalent to faith. That repentance is nothing more than a synonym to faith. I don't buy that. I don't buy that in part because of the translations of the word metanoia into other languages. It means to turn around. That's what the word means. And that's one of my soapboxes. Soapboxes that you hear me talk about from time to time. And as I said, I said this earlier, but some of these translations show some poor Greek skills. So they're not our best witnesses to exactly what's going on in every nuance, every word, every word ending. But they do help us because they're another witness, an early witness to what the text actually said, because that's our goal. We don't have the originals. We have to construct it. Early versions, important ones. Okay, just this is the family of Syriac. And that, remember, replaced the language in Israel. 
northern Israel, north of Israel, southern Israel. We began to speak in Aramaic, and, and translations of the Bible began to appear in Aramaic. The Peshitta is something that you can find even on Logos. How many of you have Libronic software? You may even have it if you look on your library. You'll have the Prashida, and the reason the Prashida is so important is because it's one of the most ancient and complete translations of the Bible into another language. And it becomes very important for those who are trying to see the close relationship of uh, Aramaic or Syriac. That's what Syriac is. It's old Christianized Aramaic. They'll start to see um, what these Greek words meant and how it was translated very, very early on from the 2nd century to the 5th century in the Peshitta language. Okay, here's what, by the way, Peshitta looks like. And it's interesting, if you have Libronics, I mean, it pops up and you go, wow, that doesn't look like Hebrew, that doesn't look like Greek, and it certainly isn't English. Um, and just, just so you know what you're dealing with here, this is the old Christianized Aramaic they call Syriac, and the translation is called the Peshitta. Okay, Coptic. You've got your map in your mind, right? Down south in Egypt, this is what they spoke. Coptic, by the way, now when you think of Egyptian languages, whether it's a you know, cartoon from Pixar or whatever, you think of hieroglyphics, right? This was the language that developed post-hieroglyphics in Egypt. This replaced it. This was the working language of Egypt. Greek, by the way, had a huge influence on the development of Coptic in Egypt. Lots of Greek manuscripts and Coptic manuscripts go side by side. A lot of uh, diglots, we call them two languages. We have Greek and the developed and developing Coptic language right next to it. Several dialects of Coptic. Let's see what else I got here. Oh, I got a picture of one. Here is an old, and I, did I get this? What is this? Oh, this is a page from the book of Acts in Coptic. Can you see it looks a lot like Greek? <laughs> yeah. It's all Greek. But, I mean, you've seen a lot of Greek manuscripts here so far. Oh, yeah, oh I got one on the bottom of page 34, too. Now, that one's probably about a 12th century or 11th century Coptic Bible. And the Coptic text, and I got an old one here for you on the screen, but they did such beautiful Bibles. I mean, by the 8th century, they were producing, I mean, really fancy art-filled Bibles. And like this one, they'll have a text on one side, a picture on the other, um, and though some historian may debate this statement, but it seems to me in my study, uh, no one decorated their Bibles earlier and, and more ornately than from Egypt, the Coptic Bible. But here's an early one without any uh, ornamation on it. Coptic, important. Now, there were some other ones, and I just threw these up there just to be uh, complete, because you're thinking, what about the other direction? Because you saw my map was all around the Mediterranean. That was the ancient world for the most part. But if you want to go out the other direction, okay, you do have these four, and I just pick four among others. These are ones we do have significant groups of early translations. Armenian, right, or the Georgian uh, translation, Gothics, those what became German, you know, Germany and the Germanic tribes. Arabic, uh, certainly with the rise of, of you know, the Arabic um, influence and into the Islamic period, uh, we have the Bible in, in early Arabic translations. Slavic, Slavonic, I'm sorry, um, also going out to the east and north. 
Eastern Central Europe, right? So those are some others just to round it out. But the important ones that we'll come back to when it comes to textual criticism, Latin, out west, uh, continued Greek in, in Byzantium, uh, Coptic in the south, and uh, Syriac, or the Peshitta in the heart of the Bible lands. All right, tracking with all that? One more, Latin. This is the one I want to talk about a little bit more. You can't overestimate the importance of the Latin translations of the Bible. Not for us, at least, you can't. <laughs> we're all Greek speakers, and we're all in a different translation. But when you want to talk about whatever it is, oh, you're going to do the ESV? What are you doing that for? You can't underestimate the power of the Latin language that has had an impact on our English Bibles, um, primarily because when the Latin took hold in the Roman Empire and the Bible was officially translated in a standardized version, it became the Bible for the church for centuries. And out of that came our first English Bibles. The first English Bibles, and we'll get into this, of Coverdale, right, and, and, and Wycliffe, uh, they were coming out of Latin. They were translated from Latin. Latin was the language and was the Bible, the official Bible, if you will, of the church for years. Latin, super important. Dominated the West by 250, by the third century. Latin was the language. Now, when you see it, this won't make sense perhaps, but you need to know that the abbreviation for the old Latin translations is IT. And if you were to look even at the early, um, I wish the printer would have printed these so much better, but on page 7, Let's see what we can find on page seven. I have great light up here, and I know you don't have great light out there, but anytime you see an IT with a superscript next to it, we're talking about a Latin text. Oh, and I'm looking in the footnotes, by the way. It's called the apparatus on the bottom. The top is all Greek, right? <laughs> and the bottom looks even worse than Greek, and it's some, sometimes it feels worse than Greek. But let's just look here. You see Hoti there, uh, and then it's got... Uh, P, 46, A, B, C, D. Are you tracking with me there after the 21? Okay, and then all the numbers. Now, you're, you're already educated enough to know if it has a zero, it's an uncial or a capital letter. Well, we have one, two, three, four, five capital letters. One is Greek, sorry, C, there is after the D. So that we got one, two, three, four, five uncial manuscripts, and then we get all these minuscule manuscripts, okay? Uh, then we have some lectionary, some Syriac, uh, my copy there is blank, but it gets into uh, Slavonic, and you got some church fathers. Where is some, uh, I want some Latin. 24, thank you. Oh, there you go, 24. Look at 24, you got P57 there, do you see it? It says 24, and then B, then it's got what looks like to you a T-I-S, right? Now, it's got one Gothic P27, I think it's 27, my copy's really bad here, but then look, it's got IT, do you see that? That's your early Latin translation, and then it's got some superscript. Next time I do this, I will blow all this up and make sure I get great copies for you. All the translations with an IT are some form of a Latin text. Super important. All right, I don't know why did that just for fun. Let's talk about Jerome. I quoted Jerome this weekend. Was that a good quote, right? Keep busy so Satan, do something good so Satan can find you busy. Jerome, 
Uh, He was born in the mid-fourth century, educated in Rome, became a Christian at age 20, studied Greek, mastered Latin, went to Bethlehem to study Hebrew, commissioned by the pastor, the bishop of Rome, to make a standardized scholarly Latin translation of the Bible. He started in 382, he finished in 405, and the end result is what we call the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the Latin Bible, Vulgate. Uh, Vulgar means common. It was the common language of the people. We're going to take it out of this very uh, foreign Greek and Hebrew and turn it into something people can read. The Vulgate was the common language of the day. That's why it's called the Vulgate. It was the Bible through the Middle Ages. It was the basis for most uh, Bibles, translations, Coverdale, even parts of Tyndale, and even parts, believe this or not, of the King James Bible. If you carry a King James Bible, part of your Bible has no Greek support for it. The translations came from Jerome's Latin Bible of the 4th century um, and the early 5th century. finished it in 405. Uh, super important for all the history of the English language. And here's the guy, or at least the old famous uh, pictures of him. There were several, but this one looks the most scholarly and probably the most common. There he is, head on his fist, working away in his study, dressed very nice in his Snuggie. <laughs> this is before the fancy ones came out, just plain, plain red, and he's working away. Uh, and here, by the way, is an early Latin text right here. Um, and, and this is hard to find, at least uh, in my, my photo library, because the Latin text, because... Uh, the, the Christianity was legalized. Christianity became the state religion. It became a very uh, uh, ornate, ornate Bible. Now, Jerome, the reason I wanted to put this next to his face, because Jerome spoke against ornate Bibles. He didn't like them. He, he didn't like you making it fancy. He wanted it straight ahead, and that was his philosophy. And so it's really hard if you look up, you know, pictures of old Latin manuscripts it's hard to find ones that are plain because most of them immediately became copied and ornate and big letters and different colors and all these fancy things. But I got one that I trust Jerome would be pleased with. Very straight ahead, plain, pink and white, black and white, Latin text. I love this quote from uh, Jerome because, now this is 4th century, end of 4th century, brilliant man uh, doing his work, uh, and he's got some guys working with him, but he's a translator. He's translating from a language that he is smart enough to understand, and he studied hard. He was even sent to Bethlehem to study Hebrew, and he's got to turn this into a translation that the Bishop of Rome and all the people in the church can embrace and like, and he's struggling with this just like English translators struggle. I was reading this week all the debates going on about modern English translations. I'm going to announce to the church this weekend real briefly about our ESV change so people who haven't heard it through the grapevine are going to hear it on Sunday. And i kind of reading all the stuff going on about all the debates, and I thought, wow, this guy, 4th century, same issues that we've got today. Listen to this quote from Jerome. Translation, he said, is difficult. It's, almost, it's an almost impossible art to master. Languages vary so in their order of words, in their individual metaphors, and in their native idioms. Right? Languages do. It's so different. The translator is thus faced with a choice. 
between a literal word-for-word rendering, which he says is certain to sound absurd, and so be a travesty of the original, right? Or he's got a choice of something much freer, right? He said, in which cause he is liable to be accused of being unfaithful, okay? That's what Jerome said, and I thought that's exactly what we're dealing with today, right? Now, I get a lot of, you know, criticism for, you know, translation choices, and my, my kind of tongue-in-cheek response is, well, let's all learn Greek then, and we can all preach out of the Greek on the weekend, okay? Uh, well, we, we're not going to do that. No one likes that answer, but the point is, if you don't preach out of the original language, you're stuck churning idioms that are ancient, word orders that are ancient, concepts that are ancient into something that makes sense in our language. And when you do, if you're super literal, like in the ESV, right? And my heart sinks every time I read an ESV translation. Like when we went through 1 Timothy, I was like, wow, don't like 1 Timothy translation the ESV. And I thought that's sad because it's starting to get so clunky, and, but they're trying to be really literal. And then somebody takes over. I mean, the, the whole uh, end of uh, the Thessalonians was good. I loved all that. But my point is, uh, you get too free. Now everyone accuses you of, of not being, you know, you're not being faithful to the text. This is an almost, I love the way Jerome put it, almost an impossible task. A- and try it. I mean, if you went to school and you translated or you took a language, I mean, if you really took an important document, like the Constitution of Mexico or something, and you try to translate it so that people can scrutinize it and memorize it in English, you'll see what a hard task this is. It's an almost impossible task. He says it's an almost impossible art to master. And I like what he says. It is an art, uh, not just a, a science. All right. Let's talk about ostraca. Talk about what? Ostraca. Just so that you know, ostraca is the plural of ostracon. Ostracon is the singular. Just so you know that. It's not ostracons. Ostraca. What is it? It's scripture on broken pottery. I think we already touched on this at some point. I don't remember why we brought this up. But we did, didn't we? Talk about this? I don't remember where. But yeah. It's also known as the poor man's Bible. I don't know if I told you that. But sometimes if you're reading in a book that assumes you know all this, they'll talk about the poor man's Bible. And in your mind, you need to go, oh, we're talking about how Scripture was written on clay pots or pot sheards. Okay? There are 1,624 ancient examples of this, at least in Wickren's Greek Ostraca book, 1,624. So this is common. I mean, and it's extant because it has a lot better, extant, it's existing today, because it has a lot better chance of survival than a papyrus sheet, right? It's pottery. That's going to last. So that's a lot of witnesses to the, to the text. General dates, well, they vary. We have some very early. As a matter of fact, if you want to look at Old Testament, and our mind is in the New Testament, you can find predated Christ before the time of Christ, pottery of Hebrew texts. I mean, there are few and far between and a lot of fragments, but, um, but I was reading about some of those this week. Interesting. But in terms of Greek New Testament substantiating the readings of a particular text, some of them are helpful. They are traditionally overlooked. Matter of fact, as I went through my library looking for good discussions of ostraca, I can't find a lot usually little tiny sections and paragraphs or paragraphs in, in books, um, but not real great 
dialogues about them. They're a great survivable record, though, of the scripture. There is a growing interest, or at least some of the books I read this week said that. I don't know what they're producing. I haven't read a lot. Um, Whitgren's book, Greek Ostraca, is like the old standard, but it's too technical. One that I thought would be maybe helpful for you if you really want to read about some of these things, and I don't know how many were quoted in this book, but this is a fascinating read, uh, just a thumb through, and it's got so many illustrations and pictures, you may want to pick it up. Adolf um, uh, Deisman's Light from the Ancient East, and this picture even, because the hardback doesn't have anything on the front, <laughs> uh, I got off of Libronics, so check your Libronics. If you got Logos, you may have this book in it, and it has a lot of great illustrations. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't have a whole section on Ostraca, but throughout his book, he will give pictures. I actually got this one, I think, the 7th century Upper Egypt, Luke 2270, from his book, as I recall. Um, but he has good discussion that's readable and accessible to, to us, uh, not quite as technical as some of the other things. But of the 1,624 pieces of pottery with scripture on them, he'll deal with a good number of them. And I say that maybe 20 or 30 of those in uh, Deisman's Light from the Ancient East. And it's interesting. And he talks a lot about uh, extra biblical writings and extra biblical contracts. And uh, I know you seminary students all have this book uh, and it's fun to read through. Most of us just referenced it. Few of us read it from cover to cover. Uh, but it is a, a fascinating bathroom reader put it in your bathroom it's one you just pick out you only got like five minutes in and you're, you're kind of bored with it um, sorry for that picture but it's uh it's it's one of those where it's good to thumb through every now and then sorry about that uh luke 22 that's a significant one because it's so crystal clear and it's a good two verses there from luke 22 uh, there are lots of significant examples there are 25 in most textual critic Textual, uh, text-critical books usually will at least refer to, in some technical way, to at least 25 of them. Uh, and I think that list is growing as people give more uh, emphasis to Ostraca. Several extra-biblical insights. And I think because it was the poor man's Bible, not a lot of people gave a lot of weight to Scripture written on pottery. But I think that's changing, at least from what I hear some experts saying. I didn't study it much in school. Inscriptions, next page. Descriptions of inscriptions? <laughs> well, this one's obvious, is it not? This is mostly the work of archaeology, but when we find on walls, pillars, coins, and monuments, Scripture, and we do, I mean, that has to be laid next to manuscripts, particularly if we find a 3rd century coin or a 3rd century uh, house that has a verse on a wall. Well, we want to compare that because if we're trusting in 5th, 6th, 7th century manuscripts, uh, for a particular reading, might as well double check with what we're finding that predates that to the second and third or fourth century on walls, pillars, coins, and monuments. Uh, general dates for this, they're all over the map. There is no set date for this. I would say, though, after the legalization of Christianity, we find much more scripture written on walls, pillars, coins and monuments. Even Constantine put uh, scriptural concepts, if not uh, verses, on coins. Certainly put Christ's name on various coins and sometimes scripture references on them. Importance, obviously, it's like archaeology. 
it's akin to archaeology in that it substantiates the text. We get a picture in an unchangeable, very clear, you know, indisputable ancient witness to the text. For instance, I'll give you an example. Um, I can't think of a modern example because we're not Catholics, but if you if you, you went to Catholic school, they gave you little amulets a lot of times, things with scripture on them. And one of the classics even today is the Lord's Prayer, right? Well, the Lord's Prayer is a part of scripture. It's a fairly good section of scripture. It's a paragraph of scripture. We have in inscriptions the Lord's Prayer probably more than any other inscription dating back to the fourth century. And again, I, it's post-Constantine, but it's fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. I even wrote down through the 13th century there is a, uh, uh, a profuse, uh, not profuse, I guess I could say that. It, there's a multiplication of discoveries in archaeology of inscriptions of the Lord's Prayer. And if you've been to Israel, we go some places where they have it in all the languages on the walls. And um, those a lot of the times are uh, reminiscent of the things that they find. It was one of the most popular, popularly inscribed sections of scripture in history. Significant inscriptions, uh, one that I think for the skeptic is very helpful is Pilate's inscription. If you've been to Israel, you've gone to Caesarea with us, Caesarea Maritime, right on the coast, which is a lot like Southern California beaches without the waves, uh, but they have um, uh, an old replica of the inscription of Pilate's name, because before they discovered that in the archaeology there in Caesarea, the real ones in the Israeli museum, they had no extra biblical proof of Pilate. I mean, well, how big a role does Pilate play in all this? Well, huge. Well, they didn't have anything to go on about Pilate. Well, they found the inscription there in Caesarea with his name uh, as the prefect of Tiberius, and it's all there um, in, his, uh, in the chunk of, of stone. Matter of fact, when we go there, when everyone usually gathers around and takes a picture around Pilate's inscription. But that's helpful. Those kinds of things. And usually they're short, but when you can get names from the Bible and people in the Bible substantiated in inscriptions, that's helpful. Let's talk about lectionaries. We're moving briskly through this. That's wonderful. We feel like we're making so much progress. What is a lectionary? I'm so glad you asked. It is a worship service guide. And in it, there are scripture readings and lessons. And I grab this next to my Bible, my Oxford uh, Book of Common Prayer. Those of you from Europe, or if you travel in Europe, or maybe you're part of the Episcopal Church at one time, or your parents were, uh, here's an example. This is uh, my uh, common book of prayer. If you take this book, which is a guide for services in the Episcopal Church, as you go through it, you'll find a good portion of the scripture is inscribed here. Now, it's telling you how to do services, and sit down, pray this, read that, but what you have, if I were to take out all of the instructions for service, I could recreate chapters of the Bible. I mean, several chapters of the Bible because they're telling you when to read them and for what purpose. At baptism, read this passage. At communion, read that passage. When you commission a pastor, read that passage. Well, this is the kind of thing that we have going on still today in the Church of England and the Episcopal Church, and they were doing that early on. Well, when you look at a 5th century uh, lectionary, you get a 5th century record of the Bible. And that's important because the earlier the better 
at least generally speaking, to find out what the original manuscript actually said. General dates for this, generally speaking, 7th to 12th was the proliferation of lectionaries. 7th to 12th, so perhaps my off-the-cuff example uh, would be hard to find. I'm sure we can find some in the 6th century, but the bulk of them were in the 7th to 12th century. You know what I'm talking about, right? Church guide. Importance. Well, we have tons of them. Certainly up until the 12th century, we have 2,200 different lectionaries, copies of lectionaries. They weren't all different. They might be the same, but they're all handwritten because they're not printed. So those are helpful. The more the, the more the better. The more copies we have to compare, the better. They are some of the earliest witnesses to the text, or they're at least early witnesses. They're not some of the earliest, but they're early witnesses to the text. Significant lectionaries, well, there are so many. All I wanted to add to this was, I guess this is another statement of importance, you could recreate the Bible from all the lectionaries from the 5th, uh, I'm sorry, 6th, 7th to 12th century. You could recreate every verse of the Bible many times over from the 2,200 extant lectionaries that we have. You know, let me clarify that statement. There are two books that aren't well represented in the lectionaries. Can you guess what the New Testament book is they didn't like a lot in the lectionaries? The book of Revelation. Um, matter of fact, uh, I can't think as I read on these again um, of any examples from the book of Revelation. And the other one that's not well attested in the lectionaries is the book of Acts. Now think about that. That makes sense. One is prophecy. One is history. History of Christ we want, right? History of the early church is not as important in the lectionaries for them. And then the epistles, they quote those over and over multiple times. Quotes from church leaders. Next page. Look at us flying by. The fire flames from the corners of your papers. Quotes from church leaders. What are those? Well, the title tells you what they are, but maybe another word that you may need to know is what we call patristic, patristic quotations. Patristic quotations. The patristic fathers. That's kind of a redundant statement. Uh, patristic means they're, they're the fathers, the early church fathers, you'll sometimes hear people say, or the patristic period of the church. These are the patristic quotations. What is that all about? These are sermons. These aren't church guides. That's the lectionaries. These are sermons, lectures, and letters of early church leaders, general dates. These go all the way back to the second century. Lectionaries, by the time the church got in its stride, we were figuring out how to do different church services. Early on, they were just preaching, and they were lecturing about God and Christ and his nature and what is, you know, what's happening in his ministry and what we should do in response to it and writing letters against her heretics. And we've got those all the way back to the second century. Importance. Here's one of the greatest importance of the patristic fathers or the early church quotations from church leaders is their amazing deference to scripture as early as we have patristic quotations, which is the second century. Now we got the Bible being written and it's finished at the end of the first century. By the second century, people are settling disputes by quoting the Bible. They're quoting the Bible with authority as though it is their rule of faith. Now we find that even in the scripture, as Peter says, you know, that Paul's writings are sometimes you know, hard to understand, and people distort them as they do the rest of Scripture. Within Scripture, people are quoting New Testament Scripture as Scripture, and outside of Scripture, they're quoting New Testament Scripture as authoritative Scripture, and that's a super important part 
of the early church fathers. They're obviously a very early witness to the text. I mean, this is in the papyri period, not the uncial or the minuscule period. We're starting from the second century with quotations of church fathers that we have extant, and that's critically important to get an insight into what the text was. The entire New Testament, including Revelation and Acts, is represented in the early church fathers. I counted, I didn't count every page, I went through my uh, pre-Nicene, right, that's second, third, and fourth into 25 years century, so that's 225 years. Uh, I had over 6,000 pages of patristic quotations um, in, in, on my bookshelf, tons of scripture. There are 36,000 quotes, I didn't count that, someone else did of just five of the most prolific preachers of the early church period. Think about that. You think I quote the scripture a lot in sermons. These these guys, five preachers, somebody did this this work, this legwork, came up with 36,000 quotations from the guys that we have extant copies of their sermons, preaching uh, letters and lectures. That's big. I mean, if you took my sermons just for the last 20 years, for instance, and said, how many verses did he quote? If someone transcribed all of those, you'd say, wow, that's a lot. Well, take me and four other biblical preachers. You could have 36,000 quotes of the Bible that date back to the second, third century. How important is that in figuring out what the Bible actually said? Very important. As a matter of fact, when I was trying to talk against the whole blasphemous idea that Constantine created the Bible, what did I do? I said go pre-Constantine and see the patristic fathers quoting the Bible and go post-Constantine and see them quoting the Bible and see if those quotes match. And indeed they do. Therefore, Constantine didn't create the Bible as we know it because these guys are quoting the Bible um, all the time in their writings. Let me give you just uh, four super important names. I'm sure you've heard these all. Arrhenius uh, was born in, in 130 and died in 202. He was a pastor in Lyons, ancient Gaul, modern France. And um, he copied the entire Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote them out. And if you compare Arrhenius's handwritten copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and compare it to Sinaiticus, right, the early codices, or Vaticanus, guess what? Identical, Right? I mean, not for every single letter, right? But the, the text, it matches. And so we're talking 4th century codex and 2nd century pastor who writes out the gospels by hand and they match. Hey, guess what? Uh, pre and post Constantine as well, right? And again, why wasn't the gospel of Thomas and all of that in there? Because that, that's, a, that's a crock theory, that's why. Well, I mean, right? Come on. But they'll sit around and smoke their pipes and say they got it. You know, I don't know what really happened. No, you don't. I mean, they don't. They're ignorant, but they love to demean the Bible. How about Clement? Clement. Anybody live in San Clemente? Right? There's your guy right there. Clement, guess where he lived? Clement of Alexandria. He didn't live in San Clemente. Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt. He was uh, really uh, the, one of the first seminary presidents. He, w- he headed up a, uh, 
a school, a theological school in Egypt. Now, here's the problem with Clement of Alexandria. Um, while Irenaeus of Lyons was great to write out scripture, a lot of times large chunks of it, uh, a lot of Clement's quotations that we have, he's doing off the cuff. He's not reading, he's not referring to a text, he's quoting, he's paraphrasing. Uh, so much of what uh, Clement does is, is paraphrase. I do that a lot from the pulpit. When I don't turn somewhere and I just paraphrase something, um, he did that a lot. But here's an interesting fact about Clement. Clement quotes every single book of the New Testament except Philemon, James, and Second Peter. Every other book in his writings, preachings, lectures, and letters, he quotes every other book of the New Testament. What is that, 24 books of the New Testament out of 27? Tertullian. Tertullian, from 160 to 220. I just picked the early guys, and there's several more, and there's more early guys, but these guys are guys' names you probably heard of. Maybe it's interesting to learn something about them. He also was from Egypt. He was from Carthage, um, northern Africa. He was the first church leader to write in Latin. So we have a lot of his writings uh, in Latin, and he has very exacting quotations of the New Testament. And then sometimes he goes off and paraphrases large sections. He does both. But unlike Clement, a lot of his stuff is very exacting. He wrote a ton. Tertullian was prolific. Carthage. One more, because I ran out of room. Origen, 185 to 254. I said Tertullian wrote a lot. No one wrote more than Origen in the early church, at least that we have surviving. Origen of Alexandria, who, by the way, took over the seminary after Clement as the head of the seminary there. He was by far the most pro prolific early church writer. We have over 6,000 examples of his sermons, lectures, or letters. 6,000. He wrote the Hexapla. Does anybody ever heard of the Hexapla? Hexapla is, uh, we talk about a diglot, that's two. Hexapla is six. He took the Old Testament Hebrew text and put it in a column. Then he took five different versions of the Septuagint right? Because there were standardized and then there was other ones and he, he made the first parallel, he really did the first textual crit, text critical work uh, in the Hexapla during his, um, during his time. This is another guy, by the way, that didn't quote much of Revelation and he didn't quote much of Acts. He quoted 95% of his quotations are from the Gospels and uh, the Epistles and most of those, the Pauline Epistles. Now, remember this set of books, these are the, the red ones, the one with the red label, these are pre-Nicene, that means pre-325, and I just went through there and counted, you know, the last page of all these, this is over 6,000 pages of pastors and church leaders writing and quoting the Bible before Constantine ever was out of diapers, you know what I'm saying? I mean, so this is a lot of Bible uh, pre-Constantine. For what that's worth. And I'm always kind of fighting that Constantine uh, nonsense. Now, you've got this whole section with the charts. I had some questions afterwards on the charts. So I just want to make this real clear and walk through these real quick. Now, I gave you the new charts that are much more readable last week. But it's not complete, obviously. The papyrus section is complete. As a matter of fact, the papyrus section that I printed for you last week goes all the way through papyrus 126, right? Well, the one I gave you here, 
that is a terrible copy only goes through one, no, it doesn't even go into 197. That's the same material there. So you can skip that first section. Now, the dot section. Some people were confused about this. Do you see this? I didn't put it on the overhead. What is all this? Well, the first one is only papyrus. So if you took the book of Matthew and the 28 chapters of the book of Matthew, this is page 45, by the way. If you took the book of Matthew and you said, okay, the earliest, earliest manuscripts. Now, I'm not, ca I'm not counting lectionaries. I'm not counting early versions. I'm not counting uh, uncials manuscripts. I'm not counting minuscule manuscripts. I'm not counting uh, early church fathers, patristic quotations. I'm just counting when this was done, probably about 95 papyrus manuscripts, how many of them touch on the book of Matthew? Okay, well, there they are, and there's the layout. There's only one, two, three papyrus that do at least part of the 11th chapter of Matthew. And some people said, wow, that's not very good. It doesn't count every other witness to the New Testament. This first set of charts is only papyrus manuscripts because that's all the rage to figure out you know, where they are and how, how they measure up. So I, gi I give you there, oh, my pages are out of order. Or are they? Ha! <laughs> no, my pages are in order, but they're not in order canonically, right? 47 should come before 46 because Acts, well, no, I guess I didn't do it that way either. I see what we did. We did Pauline epistles on page 46. Then we did Acts and the general epistles in Revelation on page 47. Do you see what that is? Just the papyrus. Now, page 48. Now I started showing you uncial manuscripts. Now again, I'm not counting early versions. I'm not counting lectionaries. I'm not counting inscriptions. I'm not counting uh, uh, potsherds, right? Uh, uh, ostraca. I'm not counting uh, patristic quotations. I'm just counting now the most popular uncial manuscripts. What does Matthew look like? Now you see the witnesses? Tons. See? And every time you see a black dot, that means the entire chapter is there in that manuscript. Got it? See what we're doing there? And you can see like the top one, Sinaiticus, the Aleph there, number one. That's got two names. Got Aleph and number one on page 48. It's got the entire book of Matthew because it's almost the entire Bible. It is with very few exceptions. So I did that for a few pages. I gave you these examples. And I, I guess I took you all the way through Revelation in that, didn't I? Yeah. Now we could have done, I just want you to know, now we could have done minuscules. Then we could have done, you know, uh, ostraca. We could have done lectionaries. We could have done patristic quotations until we're, we're run out of paper. Because we have thousands of witnesses to every chapter of the Bible. That's what I'm trying to say to you. Old Testament, more on that in a minute. New Testament, well documented. How far back? Way far back. See? The earliest, a bit spotty. But we could have done this with every single kind of witness to the New Testament. There was great coverage. But know in your mind as you look at these charts, I just gave you papyrus and unshields. And some minuscules perhaps. Is there? No. They're all unshield manuscripts. Tracking with that? Any questions about those charts? Do you get that? What we're doing there? Okay, let's talk about this real quick, super quick. Observations regarding the Old Testament documents. Well, Mike, you've been talking about New Testament the whole time. What's with the Old Testament? You're trying to cover something up? You're trying to cover something up, aren't you? No, I'm not trying to cover anything up. 
There are some difficulties regarding the Old Testament. First difficulty is, wow, it was longer ago than the New Testament, right? If our date for the Pentateuch is 1425 BC, and now we sit here at 209, 2009, right, that's 3,460 years ago that this book was written. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is going to make it difficult. When we start talking about how many extant manuscripts do we have and how far back do they go, are we going to be able to create charts like that? No, not as easily. Why? Because we don't have the thousands of copies, and they're not very close to the original writing. Well, that's a problem. It is, and it isn't. Number two, you need to remember the Jews were regularly persecuted, and that's an understatement. I mean, just to look at the big hits on the Jews, you got Assyria, 721 B.C., Babylon, 586 B.C., the Seleucids in 175 B.C., the Romans in 70 A.D., and every time, and the, and the Muslims in, in, in the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries, right? And if you wanted to get into modern times, you got the Nazis. You could go on and on where they're getting decimated and their religious books are being burned and their, their worship centers are being destroyed. Assyria, Babylon, Seleucids, Romans, etc. That makes it hard because there is a lot of uh, things being destroyed that we sure wish they didn't destroy because we want to make sure we've got all the artifacts we can possibly find. Talk to Indiana Jones about that. Number three, laws required the destruction of worn manuscripts. We love putting the old, I, I do at least, let me speak for all of us, corporate we, putting the old manuscript pictures up there. Don't you? I just love it. And I even love it like the front cover of your notebook when it's kind of just torn up on the edge. Oh, I love that. They didn't. Jews hated that. This is God's perfect book. I know you love carrying around your little tattered Bible, right? You feel good. You know that old statement, you know, a worn out Bible belongs to someone who's, or a Bible that's falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. That's how it goes. Have you heard that one? A Bible that's falling apart belongs. You love to carry that. Jews did not, right? If you're a rabbi, you wanted that thing to be pristine. It's the word of God, see? So the law required, the rabbinic and, and, and Talmudic laws required that these manuscripts be destroyed. A worn or damaged manuscript, if it contained the word of God, which uh, almost all of them did, had to be sealed in wax and put in jars and buried in Jewish cemeteries. And then they were unclean, right, in Jewish cemeteries. You weren't to ever touch them again. So we've lost a ton of these old manuscripts. It's unlike the New Testament when there wasn't that sacred reverence for the actual document itself. What do we have? Just real quick, I don't know if you want to write these down or not. I've got about eight of them here. What are some of the oldest large chunks of Old Testament we have? Okay, These are A.D. Now, A.D., this is 895 A.D. The Cairo Codex contains the prophets, which is a big section of the Old Testament. The Leningrad Codex of the prophets, which is different than the Leningrad Codex. We'll look at that. Dates to around 916. We have that extant, exists, 1,000 years old. We have the Aleppo Codex. That you may have heard of because it's one of the most complete codices of the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. The Aleppo Codex. Got the British Museum Codex. The British Museum Codex of 950, and that only includes the Pentateuch. The Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Old Testament. This is the best one. As a matter of fact, you can go and buy 
it's kind of expensive, but you can buy a facsimile of this one, the Leningrad Codex. This has the entire Old Testament in it, and it dates to right around uh, 1,000 or 1,008 A.D. You can buy a facsimile. It's a big, fat book. Uh, don't buy it for me. Please don't buy it for me. But I have looked at it and said, well, that would be really cool to have. If you're going to buy me something, I've got other things you can buy for me, but don't buy that. But I've seen that, and it's really cool. Because sometimes I say I like that, and somebody buys it for me. I don't want you to buy it for me. I don't need it. Um, but it's a really cool big book. Really cool. Uh, but, I, but I don't want you to buy it for me. Uh, and I mean that. I'm not just saying that. People get on me. You say that just because you want somebody to buy it for you. No, I don't. <sighs> the Leningrad Codex. It is cool, though. Very pretty. The Ruchlin Codex of the Prophets, 1105. That one may not be well known to you because we have several others. Cairo and Leningrad are usually referred to more often. Geniza, the Geniza fragments of Cairo, amazing. I forget the number on this, but thousands, I think it's like 16,000 fragments of the Old Testament that date from the 6th to 9th century from Cairo. And again, much like the New Testament, Cairo is a great place to find these, not only because it was a center of you know, Judaism and Christianity, but because the arid climate lends itself to finding these fragments. These are all, for the most part, with the exception of some of the uh, Geniza fragments, all from the period of the Masoretes. The Masoretes who settled, uh, one of their centers was up in, near the Sea of Galilee, to um, write and copy carefully uh, the Bible. We had scribes the whole time, but these were a set of people uh, who gave us the vowel pointings and worked really hard to preserve the text. Okay, let's talk about why we should have confidence. Why, why should we have confidence in this? Well, unlike the New Testament, the Jews, oh wow, we're out of time. All right, we'll talk about this next.